Content warning for sexism, bigamy, philandering, and double entendres. Action! Excitement! Horror! Romance! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination! What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. And in return for your praise of me, I will tell you that, if your wife has been carried off by a devil, your affair is one which Koshay alone can remedy. Assuredly, I think it is to him you must go for justice. But how may I come to him, grandmother? Oh, as to that, it does not matter at all what road you follow. All highways, as the saying is, lead roundabout to Koshay. The one thing needful is not to stand still. This much I will tell you also for your song's sake, because that was an excellent song, and nobody ever made a song in praise of me before today. Now Jurgen wondered to see what a simple old creature was this Mother Sarita, who sat before him, shaking and grinning and frail as a dead leaf, with her head wrapped in a common kitchen towel, and whose power was so enormous. To think of it, Jurgen reflected, that the world I inhabit is ordered by beings who are not one-tenth so clever as I am. I have often suspected as much, and it is decidedly unfair. Now let me see if I cannot make something out of being such a monstrous, clever fellow. For a brief period in the 1920s, the defining figure of the fantasy genre in America wasn't Robert E. Howard or H.P. Lovecraft, it was James Branch Cabell. Lynn Carter once called Cabell the only American author of genius to devote his career to fantasy, and his books were wildly popular. Yet Cabell is almost forgotten today. If he's remembered at all, it's for his then wildly controversial novel, Jurgen, which we'll be looking at today. Hello, I'm Adam Prosser, and with me is Philip Rice. Hello. Hello, and welcome again to What Mad Universe, the show where we look at uh, pulp and the origins of pop culture stuff in sci-fi and genre fiction. Um, and today, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at uh, a, what is nowadays a pretty obscure novel called Jurgen, A Comedy of Justice by James Branch Cabell. Cabell. Uh, uh, from 1919. 1919. Uh, it's very... Uh, I, the the hubbub was in the twenties. Yeah, <laughs> so it's it's uh, you know it was sort of right at the tail end of nineteen nineteen. So I'd say it's a, a nineteen it's a very nineteen twenties novel. Very much so, um, and it, it didn't get popular till the twenties, like you said. Right. Well, and and it was popular because it was it went on trial. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they uh, they tried to ban it for mm -hmm. its various uh, sexual double entendres and right. And apparently the joke about papal infallibility, uh, mm -hmm. Cabell said he wasn't 100% clear what they were angry about, but he he thought that was the thing that really set them off, was the yeah. joke about uh, papal infallibility. There are a lot of sex jokes, though. <laughs> there are, yes. It's all very, um, it's all very, it's a very 
as it were, decadent kind of yeah. novel. Uh, very intimidated by your big sword. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does not <laughs> savidate from uh, from using all the uh, possible uh, inclinations of having a sword. Uh, literally Excalibur, actually, that he has. Yeah, but also at one point uh, when he's pretending to be a king and the lights go out and the woman says, uh, I didn't believe you were king because you didn't carry a, a large... Um, uh, scepter but now i see you have a very large scepter indeed <laughs> yep yeah that kind of stuff <laughs> um yeah he's in some ways he's almost the um uh yeah he's got the uh, oscar wildean kind of touch to yeah. it he's almost the uh the pg wodehouse of fantasy except american and a little maybe little raunchier little raunchier and with a bit more teeth to it yeah uh, or f scott fitzgerald ish maybe in some ways that whole he's clearly of that literary scene yeah. as it were and uh, the reason I find this book interesting is just that, um, and I think we've mentioned this before, uh, you know, people have a tendency to think J.R.R. Tolkien almost invented modern fantasy, when in fact the genre was around and thriving for decades before him, uh, but it just had a very different style to it. And Various uh, styles, yeah. Yeah. It went through a number of permutations before Tolkien sort of arrived, and then everybody was just sort of either imitating Tolkien or right. trying to deviate from Tolkien, but yeah. it was all... Like we said in the last episode with the with the book on Roman history, you know, it's either copying or a reaction to. Right, exactly. Yeah, Tolkien became the massive center of gravity that everyone had to respond to mm -hmm. when they were talking about. It. I mean, to a certain extent, Robert E. Howard as well, and yeah. H.P. Lovecraft. But um, but people don't. They're not as household names, I suppose. In a, Right. In their own right. I would say most people know Conan the Barbarian. If yeah, they don't yeah. I know mean, his name, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, as people know who Tolkien is. Right, right. There are, you know, I guess there are movies about Howard as well, but right. yeah. Yeah, well, it's it's you can almost say that at that point when uh, J.R. Tolkien, when Lord of the Rings was published in the 50s, because of course Tolkien did The Hobbit, which is not quite in the same mode as Lord of the Rings to the same extent. Uh, the point being that there was this very elaborate pre-created history and this world, this very elaborate world building that he'd, he'd locked down. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the new thing that he pioneered, I would say. That had been done to some degree, but not as elaborately. Like, Tolkien really brought mm -hmm. it out. Right. Like, other people had invented places oh, and people would always yeah they'd always say yes i came into this imaginary kingdom but the idea of literally i've worked out this entire history this entire language yeah, yeah. of this other subcreated world subcreation was the world he, the word he used for it uh that was the big new thing and then that kind of became the uh the thing that fantasy was the go-to for mm -hmm. um there were exceptions, like I say, that's the reason i bring up robert e howard is that there were exceptions which was uh you could talk about um purely pulp swashbuckling fantasy would probably they did people did do conan knockoffs into the 60s and 70s and they probably wouldn't have as dense a uh a backstory to their worlds in the same way so if yeah. you're going to do something that was non-tolkien fantasy it's leaning a little more towards the pulpy robert e howard branch of things i would say yeah but they did tend to overlap its each other to a degree where like you know even the even when you're doing a pulpy sword slinging thing you might have a bit more of an elaborate backstory to the world because <laughs> of mm -hmm. J.R. Tolkien. And again. specifically elves and dwarves and some of the other right. trappings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that all the, the Dungeons and Dragons stuff. And that, yeah. it really got codified, I, I guess, the late 70s and 80s. That was when it yeah. really started to, to roll in. Uh, again, because of Dungeons and Dragons and because t uh, the Tolkien paperbacks broke through in the U.S., I think, more in the 60s than they did earlier. Mm -hmm. um, 
So there were some, and there's, I guess there's C.S. Lewis as well. But so then you go to the kids' fantasy stuff. Um, yeah, fantasy wasn't huge in the in uh, certainly not in North America in the fifties uh, and early sixties. It's sort of and started, particularly not fantasy for adults, right? Specifically, exactly. which this definitely is. Yeah, if you're going to see fantasy in the fifties, post World War II, up until the mid sixties, uh, it would have been maybe a riff on King Arthur. Mm-hmm. Uh, Though one, this is as well, yeah. Well, that well, this yeah. is what I'm going to say. Um, so yeah, it's it's um, you didn't quite get into really wild pure fantasy until even when you did, it would it would always be kind of there'd almost be a like there's a scientific explanation for it kind of kind of story mm-hmm. in comics and things of the time. You know, there, there's rarely yeah, there's a wizard who can cast spells. It's it's almost uh, framed in a different way. But yeah, before. Um, so this is just an interesting look at the time before Tolkien took yeah. over. Yeah, uh, this is a book I had heard of, but I just hadn't gone to yet. So I'm I'm glad I finally did because it's got a lot of really interesting stuff in it. Yeah, it's it's a it's a romp through folklore and mythology and literature for sure. Yeah. He use he draws on characters from many different. I mean, arguably someone like. C.S. Lewis did the same. He brought in Greco-Roman and medieval European And Father stuff. Christmas. Yeah, Father Christmas. But he, I mean, he had centaurs and fawns yeah. alongside, you know, uh, unicorns and whatever other fantasy, like, it was much more of a medieval type fantasy world, Narnia. Uh, in this case, Cabell brings in um, everything you've, uh, he, he does Russian, he does Norse. Arthurian is definitely a go-to. Uh, he references... Um, like ancient Greek stuff. Yeah, a lot of ancient Greek stuff. Uh, I mean, Nessus is a character, the centaur. Right. Um, Nessus, the centaur, is the character in who traditionally kills Hercules. You, yeah. You think of Hercules as becoming immortal, as he did in later versions, but uh, in the original story, he's killed by a centaur who gives him a... Uh, uh, a shirt which is poisoned with his own blood. Yeah, he becomes immortal afterwards. Right. Oh, okay. After I mean, his death. Yeah, there's, that's di- the there's idea. different versions of it, I guess. Yeah. But ne- it's just significant because Nessus gives Jurgen a shirt as well in yeah. the story, uh, which is clearly a nod to that. Um, even though, well, then, so then the question becomes: Well, the shirt doesn't poison him, but it's like, but does it? <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Metaphorical that, poison. <laughs> exactly. It's the glittering. There's a lot of symbolism in this book. Yeah. Um, he's definitely things represent things, and when a centaur gives him the shirt, and it, it sort of represents his even before he literally becomes younger and gets to relive his youth, it sort of represents almost his illusions i guess if you want if mm-hmm. it's his his preconceptions about the world which because of course they get faded away over the course of the story mm-hmm. uh we should probably start at the beginning yes let's tell the plot um okay uh so jurgen uh and we're going with the pronunciation of jurgen uh we're not clear on that but that's what we're gonna stick to as a, uh, as a scandinavian name it's jurgen uh this is an american the, guy writing about a character who supposedly lives in medieval france no not even medieval arthurian era france so right, right. like who knows <laughs> yeah a, a fantastical era as well as place uh though later on um uh it's suggested that it comes from jargon so mm. i don't know right that's right um etymologically connected to jargon so mm-hmm. i don't know mm-hmm. we'll say jurgen yeah um well you had you had an audiobook that said jurgen yeah so we're gonna go yeah. with jurgen yeah uh so he comes from uh, uh a place in southern france was it southern france yeah southern france uh called uh uh god poitem poitem thank yes. you which is probably a mashup of poitiers and angoulême which are both real places in france yeah 
Uh, and this is a fictional place uh, uh, Cabell went to for every, pretty much every story he wrote throughout his career. I'm not sure of everyone, but he definitely went There's through a 20-year yeah. period where he was writing yeah. like a 25-volume uh, saga, which we can talk yeah. about later. But yeah, um, it's, they're that, all that goes from, from Arthurian times to modern-day Virginia. So. Right. Um, yeah, so Jürgen is, uh, is an older man. He works as a, as a pawnbroker. And uh, he's walking one day, and a priest curses evil, and he says, you know, evil's fine. <laughs> yeah. Why you gotta be so mean to evil? <laughs> yeah. That's what he says. Because uh, Jürgen is a very, um, he's a trickster character sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I see him as sort of like a, a brer rabbit or a, right. a coyote from native, various native cultures. Or Well, like, he calls himself a monstrous, clever fellow, yeah. which gives you, an, he's a very, oh, I'm such a rogue. Oh, I'm yeah. so mossy. He's that kind of guy. But yeah. he does, he is very good at rhetoric, and he's very good at convincing people of his, of his, mm-hmm. Of how to go about things uh, in ways that they think suits them, but actually suits him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's the kind of character we're dealing with throughout the story. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, he's both a poet and a pawnbroker. <laughs> he was a poet in his youth, and then he got a job as a pawnbroker, basically because his uh, because he got married right he married uh, to a woman named Dame Lisa, mm-hmm. and um, he, so he 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 praises evil to the priest, yeah. basically. And uh, then immediately afterwards, uh, a strange gentleman, all black, not as in African-American, as in he has solidly black skin, uh, shows up and says, well, wasn't that nice of you to say a nice word for evil? <laughs> Nobody ever has a nice thing to say for evil. Um, and uh, I can't remember exactly how he gets to, on the subject of his wife. Yeah, but basically, um, uh, Jürgen uh, would have been a poet if he hadn't gotten married. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so Cochet is the character we're dealing with, the the black man, yeah. um, decides to reward Jurgen by snatching away his wife, <laughs> and allowing him to, well, as we see, sort of sets up the whole story. Right. Um, and um, yeah, Jurgen's kind of like, yeah, if I if only I didn't have this wife nagging me all the time, yeah, to get stuff done. Yeah, it's pretty sexist uh, right. throughout well, but, the book, but yeah. But then at the same point, well, to be fair, that's the character more than it is necessarily uh, the, the theme, because he immediately realizes, wait, I messed up. Yeah, <laughs> and and he and part of it is guilt. No, no, I mean him... the, the wife being a nagging, right. and she is portrayed that way. So, well, this is partly what the story is about. Yeah, too. it's uh, it, it, in a way, it's about learning to have appreciation for the women in your life. Yes. that is kind of the theme of the True. story. True. Um, uh, so, um and he's repeatedly referred to throughout the story as the maker of things as they are. Mm-hmm. So he made the world as it is. Right. Um, and Koshay is actually a character from Russian folklore. That's right, yes. uh, Readers might remember him as a villain from Hellboy. Oh, okay. Yeah, I haven't read a lot of Hellboy. I think there's actually a miniseries uh, mm-hmm. recently based around that character. So, right, right. Um, but Hellboy fought him at one point. Yeah. Um, In Russian folklore, Koshe is usually the sorcerer uh, or giant or whatever, who known as Koshe the Deathless. And um, the, the classic story about him is, you know, I can never be killed because I've hidden my heart or my soul or my life, depending on the version, uh, inside an egg, inside a duck, inside a well, inside a church, on an island, in a lake, surrounded by fire and guarded by dragons. So the only way you could kill me is to find that. So the hero named Ivan, inevitably, in Russian folklore, has to go and find that um, that that heart, and that's the only way to kill Koshe. Mm-hmm. So, Horcruxes, that, basically. Yeah, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> yes, it's the basis for the idea of the Horcrux, yeah. 
anyway, uh, but uh, so yeah, Corsier takes his wife away, and and uh, and Jurgen goes from. But but this is actually a, a, a very different take on Corsier. It's basically just right. a name only thing. But Corsier mm-hmm. here is he's initially portrayed as the devil, right? But it turns out he's not no. really. He's more like maybe in some senses he's more like the Gnostic devil, the right. creator of the physical world yeah. but it turns out here he also created the spiritual god yeah. so yeah. it's sort of gnosticism but also the opposite of gnosticism yeah cabal literally called him in one of his notes he said yeah he's basically the demiurge and he yeah. said i wrote it as the devil took his wife away but by the time i got to the end of the story i was like to as uh, i think the quote is to elevate the novel i had to make him uh the gnostic demiurge who had created the entire universe basically. yeah uh i guess we should briefly explain what gnosticism i don't know <laughs> No, I think uh, people can look it up. We don't have time to talk about okay. it. Okay. But it's just the Apocrypals. idea of... Apocrypals. Listen yeah. to Apocrypals. Yeah. That's a good podcast. Whether there's a real <laughs> God or, or whether the God, you know, is just sort of fooling us and the God is bad and there's a better God behind yeah. that God is the idea. But in this case, the, the even the better God was created by Koshe. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Anyway. It's the idea of a false God versus a true God, yeah. essentially. Yeah. So, yeah, so Jürgen basically goes, well, I've got to do the manly thing, as he keeps calling it, and get my wife back. That's the that's the noble thing to do. Yeah. Uh, so that his quest is to go and rescue his wife from Koshe. Uh, initially. He, initially. Uh, but he gets very distracted along the way. <laughs> but, it, of course, it's a journey of self-discovery is the mm. point. Um, and he uh, first he meets the centaur, as we said, Nessus. Uh, for, well, no, yeah, he meets he meets Nessus first. I'm yeah. trying to remember the order in which everything happens. Yeah, a lot of stuff happens in this book. Um, he gets taken away to the garden between dawn and sunrise. Yeah, which can only be reached by a by an imaginary creature. Uh huh. Uh-huh. That's that's the explanation. So that's why Nessus has to take him there. Right, and there he meets uh, the woman who he loved, uh, the woman who was the great love of his life, uh, Dorothy La Desiree. Yeah, when he was a teenager. When he was a teenager, and in fact, he's he's explicitly is like it's not even her; it's your teenage idea of who she yeah, was exactly. basically so and there's a lot of that in this story about the the idea of the of um right uh what's the word i'm nostalgia yeah nostalgia no, looking back at things better than they actually uh, were your illusions in the yeah. classical romantic sense of you know the things you cling to even though they aren't really true basically mm-hmm. uh yeah and there's a lot of uh, that's again what the book is about it's about breaking through that and he's literally he starts as an older man and he knows that he's already gone through this but he's still kind of clinging to it and that's why he has to go through this whole process again and mm-hmm. kind of reiterate what he's been through um and uh so he he ends up meeting um Sarita. Uh, Sarita. Mm-hmm. Madame Sarita, uh, who's um Well, she's called one of the Leishi, who appear to be gods. Yeah. Uh and she's the goddess of Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's the uh there's one for every day of the week. She's the goddess of Wednesday. Uh, the most mundane, boring day of the week, essentially. Yeah. The one who makes you go, Oh my god, when's the weekend ever gonna and get here? Her job is to make everything uh uh, what what was it? She again? bleaches. Yeah, things. she bleaches things, so yeah. they, they fade. Yeah, and 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 as I said, as we say, Jurgen's been given this uh, shimmering coat, uh, and she talks about, well, I'll fade that in time as well. So she's essentially the process of time wearing you down mm-hmm. uh, in personified. And but Jurgen gives her this very flattering speech, which I mentioned at the beginning, and as a result, she basically uh, gives him a, a gift, which is to go back to his youth and uh, to a specific Wednesday. Right, to a specific Wednesday. Day, and um, and he can uh, sort of do things over from uh, from uh, from 
how they actually played out. Yeah. So the the uh, love of his young life, uh, he tries to to win her from the uh, from the guy who actually ended up marrying her. Right. Uh, but uh, he's Heitman he, Michael. Heitman Michael. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he he fails because Heitman Michael is just a better swordsman than he is. Right. And he ends up stabbing him in, in the back. <laughs> right. But yeah, uh, Jurgen stabs yeah. Michael. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, right. established very early on that Jurgen is a pretty a- immoral guy. Yeah, he's <laughs> essentially a, he's a jerk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and very selfish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, Jurgen ends up uh, sort of failing in this section, mm-hmm. uh, failing to uh, to rewrite his life because uh, even though he's killed this guy, she's like, you know. Mm-hmm. You just killed a man. <laughs> exactly. You, well, of course, that was the woman. That was the guy she loved and ended up marrying, even though she wasn't admitting it at this point yeah. in history, basically. Yeah. Um, so, but then he runs off. But the thing is, he stays young uh, for quite a bit more time. Yeah. Uh, and he, he kind of goes, oh, Sarita forgot about me, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. So I get stay young. And so then he runs off and has a series of romantic adventures, all of which involve uh, betting various women. Yeah. Uh, starting with Guinevere. He rescues Guinevere from Arthurian legends. Mm-hmm. Uh and ends up trying to woo her away from Arthur, but he, he... Well, I don't think he's actually wooing her away from Arthur. I think this is a set... He's at a time from before Yeah, that's Arthur what I mean. Like, yeah. Arthur is wooing her at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, or one has requested that he marry her. Right. Uh, I don't think they've met yet. I can't remember. Does Jurgen know Arth- the Arthurian legend? No. Or is he no, just... he hasn't... Because yeah. I was confused by that initially. I thought he had traveled back in time further, right. but no, this is just set... Yeah, around the time of King yeah. Arthur, which does, of course never happened. So yeah. again, this is all in a fairy tale kind of yeah. world to begin but, with. But uh, so Jurgen is not aware throughout the story of who King Arthur is, right? Well, arguably, yeah. See, it's significant because then later he goes to he meets like Achilles and characters from ancient Greek myth as well. Yeah. So there's definitely a uh, a theme that it's just kind of all happening in a timeless legendarium. Yeah, but that's that's like a. Um, that's a specific island where all those heroes live. So. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Um, we'll get into that. Yeah. Um, it's not meant to be even, you know, superficially logical <laughs> in terms of the historical time frame here. Yeah. Yeah. It, you can roughly slot it into places with the with the understanding that later areas are set in sort of imaginary worlds that right. he's sent to. Right. Anyway, carry on. Uh, yeah, so there's a whole bit with Guinevere, he's trying to woo her, and he ends up, he does sleep with her, mm-hmm. at least it's, impl- it never outright says he has sex with women, but the lights go out, and we can't see yeah. beyond that. Well, and of course, this is significant, because it's like, well, she's betrothed to Arthur, and yeah. she's a virginal princess, as it mm-hmm. were, you know. Uh, there's also a bit, repeatedly, about his shadow, which is strange, mm-hmm. um, and it's sort of following him around, and, um... Yeah, we'll get into that. <laughs> yeah, he keeps noticing his shadow. It's hard to summarize weird. the plot of this book because there it's isn't really. Of, yeah, it's a series of encounters. Well, in fact, uh, Cabell wrote it. Uh, he, it was a short story originally called. There it is. Some ladies and Jurgen uh, was the original title of a short, and it was, I believe, published under that title. And he literally wanted to do a series of interlinked short stories, um, which uh, were going to be each of the different you know encounters that he had with women and so forth. The original story was basically just. He meets Cochet, or the devil. He Cochet, In the original story, it is the devil, not just Cochet. And he meets him and goes, um, you know, and it, his wife gets taken away, so he goes to get her back. Cochet does the bit that he does at the climax of the story, which we'll get to. And um, 
that's the end of the story. But he basically says, but the significant thing is that the climax is him looking over a bunch of different women and uh, Cabell basically decided, well, it would be interesting if he'd already had relationships with all these women who existed. Mm -hmm. So that's what the story becomes. It's about him having all these relationships. Again, it was going to be a series of stories. He basically ended up turning it into a novel instead. Uh, And then writing all these other stories that uh, tie in, which uh, we can talk about in a bit. Uh, It is part of a, we say it wasn't as elaborate as Tolkien, but it ended up being, you know, 25 different stories, poems, books, all these other things that tie into the the land of Poitam. I think there's also like historical biographies and things. Right. Well, it's all tied to this one character that I believe either the next book or two books later, he wrote a book called uh, Figures of Earth, which is the um, uh, the the first chronologically story. And it's about a guy called Dom Manuel who becomes the ruler of Poitam. In fact, I think he literally founds the kingdom of Poitam. And uh, Jürgen's love, Dorothy, is his second daughter. Okay. Uh, so there is a whole genealogy that descends in his mind from Manuel all the way up to modern-day Litchfield, Virginia, his family. Uh, so Which I was is a act- fictional place as well. Right. That's Litchfield, all. Not, not Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the strange land of Virginia. But they, um, they go, um, yeah, they decide uh, the... Uh, uh, I'm going to say. Sorry, uh, yeah, I was surprised that Jürgen is not actually Manuel's descendant. It's, But that makes sense because Manuel becomes a royalty, so mm-hmm. Jürgen would be un, <laughs> unrelated to that. But it does tie in. All these events kind of tie into this one yeah. larger uh, So one of the characters in this area uh, is uh, the Lady of the Lake, mm-hmm. uh, who in this is uh, Anaeus. Anaeus? Yes. Uh, and, yeah. Who is a um, sort of a pre-Christian goddess... Anaides. An- Anaides. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Uh, she's he ends- a sorceress. Yeah. yeah, she's a sorceress. Uh, she's actually a mythological character, but in this case, it's sort of a bunch of characters combined into one. Right. Apparently, in an early draft, it was going to be Cleopatra. Okay. Um, and he replaced it with, yeah. It, I guess to have the transition from Arthurian to this, he made it the Lady of the Lake. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and... Uh, uh, she is uh, the ruler of a place called Cocaine, which is a thing in medieval uh, folklore, mm-hmm. sort of a uh, land of luxury and idle pleasures. Right. Yeah. That's almost too perfect, isn't it? It's yeah. called Cocaine. Cocaine. With a Jane, yeah. but well, Cocaine. Yeah, it is pronounced Cocaine. But like, I'm just to emphasize, a G, there's yeah. a G. But, and I mean, Cabell knew what he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> and it is actually interesting because cocaine was a pretty common drug in the 19th and early 20th centuries. It wasn't illegal until a bit later. Mm-hmm. I think it was just hitting the point when he wrote this where people started to say, oh, we should take it away. It's it's a vice. It's, yeah. it's Well, it's, even it's in the Sherlock with... Holmes stories, Watson right. was always saying to stop doing that. Right. But uh, it was it was done more as like, you're smoking too much and you're doing too much cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> as opposed to, it wasn't illegal. It was, yeah. it was yeah. a medicine. It was a legitimate medicine. I think we're, I think this book was written right at the point where cocaine would be seen as a little bit scandalous, you know, <laughs> even though it wasn't technically illegal at that point. Yeah. Uh, there's a, so uh, he ends up marrying uh, Anaitis. Um, he marries a lot of women in this story. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> never divorces them, so. No. Um, He's a bigamist. Yes. And that's dealt with, um, or that's discussed. But um, uh, yeah, she, she has lots of. Um, uh, 
family and other, you know, various uh, gods and things coming. Uh, there's one point where Priapus is there, and mm. uh, who's the uh, who's a Greek fertility god, always depicted with a giant penis, right? Um, giant erect penis, and Jurgen says, you know, this guy's giving me a complex, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but it turns out that uh, him spending so much time there, he's sort of might start to integrate into into the mythology so right. he might become a mythological character in his own right right and it's discussed you know his name is related to jargon so he'll probably be like a like i said trickster yeah. god or if a, i recall it was they the master philologist decides that he's a mythological element of folklore his name meaning jargon is tied to the chatter of birds so he's a sun god figure yeah. uh, whereas Aeneas is a moon god figure so naturally they have to go apart and Aeneas yeah. says yeah well that's the folklore the, <laughs> the sun god has to leave the moon god so then he goes to go pick a fight with the master philologist if I recall correctly right <laughs> yeah um a- anyway uh and uh we didn't mention Caliburn, but he a while back he had picked up the sword Caliburn, which is Excalibur. Right. Early name for Excalibur. Right. And uh, he leaves it with uh, with uh, Aniatus, and right. that leads to Arthur getting Significantly, it. Significantly, yeah. Yeah. And, hey, there's uh, there's nothing symbolic there that he leaves <laughs> his sword with this lady. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, no, no. I no, do, a sword, I do. just a sword. <laughs> but I do, uh, I do, well, that is significant as well. But I do like that then he goes, he's going to pick a fight with the master philologist who made it so he had to separate. So he goes, and that's the one big, like, real failure of the book is that he goes to pick a fight with the master philologist. And then he leaves 10 minutes later, the philologist completely convinced him, <laughs> you know, because, of course, he's a master philologist. Yeah. He can talk anyone into anything, right? And he gave him a cantrip or right. a cantrap. Right, yes. Um, mm-hmm. Which is just some nonsense about a pope uh right uh but it ends up coming in handy much later though he tries to use it several times and he says yeah here's a magical piece of phrasing you can use it's a spell i.e a, a sentence yeah uh, which is that there was a, a, a an error in the line of papal succession so there was never a pope stefan what was it, the name of the pope? i can't remember the 25th yeah. or something there was they went right from the 24th to the 26th and Every time you're gets into trouble, he tries to bring this out and mention it, and, and everyone kind of goes, "What?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But then it ends up saving him. At the yeah, end. yeah. Or not saving so him, but it helps. It, him. it does. It does come in handy at one point. Yes. I guess it was bound to happen eventually. Right. Well. The, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um. Anyway. So, so um, uh, he ends up being sent to uh, uh, Luki, which mm-hmm. is uh, actually a real island. Okay. But here it's sort of presented as a sort of, um, I don't know, Elysium field or like a Greek sort of Greco mm-hmm. uh, paradise. Right. Um, uh, he ends up marrying a uh, nymph um, or a, a dryad. Hamadryad. Hamadryad. Yes. Chloris the Hamadryad. Yeah, yeah. who is also a myth, actual myth. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the uh, city on the uh, island is Pseudopolis which is ruled over by Queen Helen of Troy, mm-hmm. or he- Queen Helen, but she was Helen of Troy, and she's married to Achilles. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, Helen looks exactly like uh, uh, Dorothy to... <laughs> Desiree. Yeah. Well, well, she's supposed to be the most beautiful woman in the world. Exactly. So he's, yeah, she becomes basically whoever you'd think. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, There's and a it- certain implication that these events happen and they're specifically tailored to him, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, Making it almost seem like it's not really happening in some ways. There's a discussion later where uh, some other people have seen 
uh, some other people, Jurgen knew in his youth, who have also somehow become young again mm-hmm, right. uh, through their own adventures. Uh, but they have an argument over which of the Desiree sisters uh, she resembles. Right, right. Because they all were in love with a different one. So. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, what, now, how is it on the island of Leche, though? It's uh, Leche. Uh, it's, it's, they all, it's the land of heroes or the land of myths or something? Yeah. How, how is that again? Uh, it's not explained outright, but yeah, it's pretty much uh, uh, Greek mythology. So heroes and pastoral mm. gods and right, uh, like Salinas, the the satyr is there and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Right, I think he's a satyr. Anyway, and he gets married to uh, Chloris as well. Yeah, and they live in a tree. Yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, uh, but uh, that that area gets invaded by uh, Philistus, the Philistines, which right. are not. Sort of, but not really the Philistines of the Bible, but because they mentioned Goliath, but uh, right. uh, yeah, they, they basically represent realists. The idea that uh, right, and they they think this area is just you know in bad taste and should be wiped out <laughs> because it's too mythological. Yeah, yes, and they worship a god who uh, whose color is gray, right? Uh, and they want to make everything gray. Yes, and they have a fire that burns gray and. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and then, uh, so just a quick uh, side note that um, this book was uh, the subject of indecency trial, as we, as I think we mentioned, um, and it was brought there by the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, which is the greatest name ever. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was brought up on charges. The judge basically threw it out and said, this is ridiculous. Though after a while, it took a while. Uh, yeah, it took a year or two, and as a... Uh, uh, um, uh, Cabell basically sarcastically thanked the society for generating interest in his work. And he wasn't kidding. Like, it, he was unknown before then, and he became very popular because people were like, this banned book is, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was 100% the thing that people say it's, you know, it's the, the satanic versus kind of situation. Yeah. Where everyone had to read it because of all the scandal and commotion about mm-hmm. it. Um, but then he actually later, uh, later added a bit in, it's in the preface of this version that yeah. I have, uh, where Jurgen is literally put on trial by the Philistines. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah it's a lost chapter that doesn't really fit in anywhere in the book because right. he never goes to Philistus in the book, right? Or in the main story, but this is sort of a—I mm-hmm. don't know when it's supposed to happen in the oh, time. Well, it's not. It's <laughs> him just riffing ironically yeah. on what happened to him uh, in real life. And basically. they're ruled over by a magistrate as a dung beetle, right? Exactly. Who uh, is accusing his poetry of uh, uh, being indecent, but he won't say what part was indecent <laughs> yeah exactly well that seems to have been an issue yeah, yeah like exactly. i say we can't figure out which uh which which part they were really objecting to but it, it's not hard to guess as yeah you say. <laughs> and i i didn't know that whole bit at the beginning and i was because i just thought that was like a four like a in media res thing and it would go back to that at some yeah. point but it never does yeah, and then it's not I read literally about, a lost chapter yeah. he just wrote it after the fact to and make then a, then i read a, about the history gig. of the book and it made sense but <laughs> Well, then he wrote a literal whole other book about it called Taboo, uh, which I haven't read. But, okay. Uh, so he was obviously pretty fixated well, on it. Well, who wouldn't be? Yeah, it was his notorious. But like I say, it helped his career. So he Though he apparently didn't like it. fame. Hmm. Okay. Well, he probably like, liked the, the, the money. The yeah, well, he definitely <laughs> probably liked the money. But uh, mm-hmm. apparently he didn't really like being mm-hmm. that well known. And he just continued writing stories set in this, right. this place and... He quickly fell off the map, and he was probably happier for it. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, they basically, a number of people said, well, if you'd written something else, you could have prolayed that into a real literary career, and he didn't want to, he just wanted to keep writing 
books about Poitam. Anyway, carry on. So uh, where was I? Uh, Chloris oh, yeah. and the the Achilles and the Hamadr- and the the Philistines invading. Uh Oh, geez, what happens next? Well, they all, if I recall correctly, all the heroes and gods are so weightless, they literally fly off into the air or something <laughs> at one point. Um, no, but what's the next section? Uh, then they go... They oh, go oh yeah, hell. yeah, they sentence him to go to... Uh, they're, they're sort of sending all these mythological creatures to the, to the hell where they came, you know. Right. Um, so, like, uh, they're, they're going to... Most of them would be going to Hades and... Right. Um, but uh, uh, he ends up being sentenced to go to the hell of his fathers. Right. Uh, which is specifically the hell dreamt up by his literal father. Right. Uh, <laughs> yes. And it's all his father's imagination creating this place. Uh-huh. Uh, and the, the demons there uh, do not like being torturing humans but humans come there and say and say they deserve to be tortured right and nothing's ever good enough for these humans (laughs) (laughs) yeah they just feel so guilty about everything they've done that they (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and we're trying our best here (laughs) yeah exactly yeah his 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 jurgen's father gets to create hell and his grandmother gets to create heaven as we find out yeah um but yeah it's 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 specifically built around his father again more evidence that it's all specifically tied to jurgen's but there's also the implication that there's lots of other hells and right well, it outright says that but yeah yeah um but this is specifically his father's hell mm-hmm. so he ends up tricking his father into creating a wife for him right a beautiful vampire woman well, he doesn't create her does he he just lures her down to hell no or he something? it's implied that he creates her oh okay because he says um um he sort of tricks his father through uh rhetoric to uh say um like his father's putting him down and mm-hmm. um and Jurgen ends up saying uh well there aren't any women here oh i'll bet you'll marry a woman and she'll be some beautiful vampire and right. you know so uh and it's implied that uh he actually imagined her and that uh, mm. uh she came ex you know she had a history but it was a retroactive history okay and that he, she was actually dreamt up by uh by his father so right. um and For, that's one of the things that sort of causes them to drift away that he can't stop thinking about is he says you know you were sort of created by my dad and <laughs> yeah that's uh, okay. sort of weird <laughs> yeah and it's uh Florimel the vampire Flor- yeah and if i had known there was a major vampire character in this book i would have read it a lot sooner <laughs> it's not advertised well, she's about as- the most agreeable vampire you yeah, could possibly imagine she was uh she was buried uh she was a seamstress in life and a cat jumped over her grave which of course would make her a vampire right and that's an actual folkloric thing you know yeah there's various ways to become vampires and different traditions and that's actually literally one of them okay but uh her sister uh refused to kill the cat because she liked cats and so floramel blames her sister for all the stuff she has to do oh um and floramel you know she she goes off nightly to to kill random men and mm-hmm. Jurgen doesn't really like hearing about that but you know it's you know uh and they they get married and she's vacationing in hell and they right. get married there bigamy is allowed in hell um <laughs> yep. uh though hell is portrayed as a as a democracy right uh it's a democratic system but because they're at war with heaven they gave emergency powers to their leader which is satan right and it's been going on for thousands of years so right. basically it's a dictatorship but they talk high-minded about democracy right this is interesting coming out of world war one yeah exactly or after yeah. world war one but yeah yeah uh and also you know leading into world war Two because hitler was 
yep. put in place with the mer- you know yep. special powers and then took advantage. Yeah, it's a cynical view of democracy, <laughs> basically. But it's very funny. It's, I mean, the, yeah. the hell section is the funniest part of the book, I right, think. Right, right. And um, now, how does he get out of hell again? What happens? Uh, he... Oh, uh... Why does he get it? I, as you say, he gets kind of... Uh, he says, you're my dad's <laughs> creation, so I gotta leave. Yeah, I can't remember what the exact uh, argument was, but he talked his way out of it. That's right. what he always does. Well, I remember, and then he goes, like, well, that's the thing. He At that point, he's kind of determined to go to heaven, I Yeah, believe. he climbs up Jacob's ladder, right. uh, literally, and goes to, uh, to heaven, which uh, we find out was literally created for his grandmother. Right. Because she showed up to... Uh, uh Koshay and mm-hmm. demanded to know where heaven was <laughs> right yeah and, and so, so he just created it and right. s- retroactively introduced it into the universe right and of course jurgen would never get into heaven except this is where the cantrip comes in he's able to say yeah yeah oh no i'm pope stefan the 25th he's like no we got all the popes he's like check again oh i think that's how he got in because uh yeah, uh, thing. Got, no, because they don't allow popes into hell because it makes them look bad. Ah, uh, okay. So uh, he uses that cantrip to, uh, uh, I think, yeah, to uh, talk them into letting him go up to heaven. I thought that was how he got, anyway, yeah, I thought yeah. that he got into heaven. But again, the point is that they go, no, we checked, all the popes are here. And he's <laughs> like, no, 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 check again. And he's like, oh, yeah, you're right, we're missing the 25th, whatever. <laughs> so they're able to claim to be that pope, basically. And get yeah. It. Yeah, and, and, um. Yeah, and then he's and then he basically he gives a big speech to God, who just kind of sits there and take it. Yeah, what I remember because the say God anything. was created specifically by his grandmother. Right, <laughs> it's right. his grandmother's imagining of God, so it's like the old fashioned. Yeah, and it's very openly not even Jurgen at this point, but Cabell giving a speech about why I'm not religious anymore. <laughs> basically, <laughs> it's just flat out him saying, you know, God of my grandfather, I don't believe in. I believe in you anymore. Sorry, I've seen too much. Anyway, yeah. So it's it's very it's it's pretty nakedly him just being able. It's to write a it's speech. not as bad as I've seen in some you know like I. I it's recall- not atheist, bro. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like there was a bit in um, uh, I didn't read the whole thing, but there's a bit in Ready Player One where he starts talking about how lame God is and <laughs> yeah, like. Right. It's not that. It's well. He's. I mean, again, he's a much better writer. Cabell is way too witty to be. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh man. Like he's not a sarcastic thirteen-year-old. Yeah. And this is very much. There's actually a. a, a I found a, an intro to one. His first novel is called uh, In the Eagle's Shadow, and he wrote a. So he wrote an intro to it where he meets a neophyte writer who comes to his door and starts like mooning over everything, and it's revealed that that's himself in the past coming to meet himself in the future and saying. You know, oh, wow, look at all the great stuff you have. I want to write nice stories about nice people doing nice things. And Cabell's like, well, you'll try, but you're not going to be able to do that. You're just going to see too much. You're not going to be able. And uh, the, the the young Cabell says, uh, you know, I want, my goal is to write the very nicest sorts of books. They would be about beautiful, fine girls and really splendid young men. And everything would come out all right in the end so they could get married and not be the sort of bitter and smart alecky and depressed people the way he coughed, the way some people do. <laughs> and this is him responding to the books that he'd read so that's his description of his own books essentially <laughs> um so yeah there's very much cynicism and actually figures see, jürgen ends up with i would say in some ways a positive uh, ending and like a more you know it does try to find some uh, a bit more warmth and humanity yeah. uh figures of earth which i've also read is uh it echoes a lot of Jurgen, but it comes out a bit bleaker mm-hmm. ultimately. Um, How does it get out of heaven? Sorry, it's hard to find some. It's hard to remember some of the transitions between the various. Well, parts. if I recall, he just go, pushes through and goes to the 
the real boss, who turns out to be... Uh, uh, oh, Koshe, yeah. Koshe. But for, before that, he has another encounter with Sarita, um, who is revealed to have been his shadow the whole time. Yeah, and watching him. Uh, the shadow is basically a spy watching him. Right. But luckily, he turns out the lights before he beds any women, so he can't be... So she doesn't know that uh, yeah. uh, he actually uh, fornicated with anybody. Right, yeah. Sarita's very moral and yeah. saying, you know, so... If he... Yeah, and she's also the one who granted him youth, so, yeah. Right. So she was basically been, yeah, I've been watching you this whole time to see what you did with new youth, and you completely blew it. You've <laughs> done nothing but be roguish and stuff, and as I say, we can't prove But at least you, you didn't fornicate. With, yeah, we, can, we can't prove that you slept with anything, um, with with anyone. So, yeah, he, he arrives at, uh, he talks to Koshe, and Koshe offers him the various women that he's been with, and we we sort of went over this section, but yeah, he, and he he rejects all of them, mm. um, and ends up uh, going with his with his wife, Dame Lisa. Right. Um, oh, we didn't mention he he had possibly killed her at one point. His wife. Uh, thinking that uh, or, uh, yeah, is he meets his wife in the Guinevere section because mm. Guinevere is running from a shapeshifter. Right. And he thinks that. Uh, that Dame Lisa is the shapeshifter, mm-hmm. and he ends up beheading her. But then he sort of starts thinking, maybe that was Dame Lisa. Right, right, yes. And that's so right. there's some ambiguity but, of whether he, he killed her. But anyway, so... I mean, she comes back anyway. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so at the end, it turns out that um, um, uh, Koshe, uh, uh sends him back a year and makes the whole year not ha- not have happened, basically. Yeah. He, well, yeah, I mean, it's significant that basically Koshe says, well, wouldn't you like this? And he calls up all the women he's met over the course of the story and says, and, and Jürgen basically turns them all down one by one. And um, so that sort of hits the point of the theme of this, which is it's essentially about how uh, it, it's almost, <laughs> I almost want to say it's almost a Scott Pilgrim thing where all your exes uh, reveal who you were at a certain point in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he, it's, you know, they do all represent you know, the stages of your journey as reflected through your attitudes towards women through life, because Guinevere is reflecting the fact that you're, uh, you know, you have this romantic gallantry towards, and this idealization of women, uh, you know, and Aetis is when you get, you know, get, you, you get horny, not that, <laughs> not that he wasn't horny before, but then it becomes, well, there are sexual cre- because he's sort of given up on the romantic illusion. So that's just, well, I'll find it in Eros as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he marries Chloris and it's like, well, then it's being happily married as it were. Uh, Florimel is actually, you know marriage when it's like she knows how awful you are and you know how awful she is but you're kind of okay with that basically uh that was almost the joke of that part Um, uh though she doesn't come back not all of them come back no and and instead of chloris it's helen of troy actually which does make sense because koshe is trying to distract him with all the beautiful women you could have instead whereas chloris is i mean chloris is beautiful but she's not uh, she's she's referred to refer, uh, recurrently as like homely and regular and more just you know comfy rather than yeah sexy and beautiful. Uh, there's a line uh, throughout the book. Uh, my wife does not understand me. <laughs> um, a lot of like every character says it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there, there's uh, there's another part where he says um, uh, she doesn't understand or no women understand me. But that's probably good because if they did, they wouldn't uh, be in. Right, uh, end up with me, <laughs> and that's the end. That's the end all and be all of it. Is it's like, wait, I had someone who understood me, who we understood each other. We were com- we, you know, and that was that's that's the true satisfaction. That's the true happiness. Mm-hmm. We know each other for real, and that's why he, 
you know, he goes to get his wife back ultimately at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the, that's the conclusion. Basically he decides, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to stick with my wife. He <laughs> opens the stick with your wife barrel. <laughs> yeah. the Simpsons have it. And, uh, yeah. And, and, and basically goes back to, uh, to where he, who he was. So this book is filled with all sorts of allusions to, uh, allusions, sorry, yep. uh, to various mythological and, uh, even contemporary fiction from the time. Right. And one of the imaginary places that he's, um, um, when uh, in cocaine, when he's uh, being told of the other places he could go to, mm-hmm. uh, one of them is Meropis. <laughs> Your uh, beloved Meropis. Yes. Uh, I've mentioned this on the podcast before. That's an ancient Greek parody of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's mostly been lost, but there's sort of fragments of the story. Um, it's sort of Atlantis, but... Uh, it was created by a guy named uh, Theopompus of Chios, who was a historian. Yeah. He was just making fun of how yeah, silly you, this you, is. You talked all about yeah, that yeah. in the uh, call episode. Yeah, I'm just... Yeah, uh, yeah. And also a few others, <laughs> probably. Yeah. He also pretends to be a king at various points. Right, um, yes. Yeah, he keeps accruing titles as he goes yeah. through. He calls himself the Duke of Logris, which I guess technically he is because he married uh, Guinevere. Or does he marry... He doesn't no, marry no, Guinevere, he doesn't. No, but he, he makes up that. It's a made-up place. Yeah. Uh, he starts uh, increasing. He becomes a king and then an emperor. And then yeah, exactly. He keeps adding, you know, the type. Oh, it mentions. Uh, sorry, another thing it mentions: Talem, uh, which is from the uh, Gargantuan Pentagoral stories. Oh, there you go. Which is an upcoming topic, yeah. possibly our next one. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of cool. And yeah. this has a lot of par- This whole book has a lot of parallels with that, with the raunchiness and the mm-hmm. uh, weird timeline and the right. uh, metaphor, the fable-like metaphors. And right. Um, well, it's not as raunchy as Gargantua, though. It's no, sort of, no, not it's, nearly. It's sort of it's it's more the sort of uh, what's the word double entendre. Yeah, this is the PG thirteen version of yeah, that, it, rather than actual uh, yeah, sex. Rather than actual uh, listing of things, the character wipes his butt with. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I can see a lot of connections with that. So that, that'll be an interesting thing to, I haven't, I, I've almost finished the series, but yeah. not quite. So, well, yeah, Cabell's clearly one of these guys who's like, look at all the literature I've read, <laughs> you know? And I mean, again, he clearly has a love of all the folkloric stuff. And yeah. The, the fantastical stuff. But uh, no, I love that it includes this stuff as like fiction, uh, mixing fiction with mythology and real life places right. and uh it's what i try to do in my work right. so <laughs> and it's done in a way of kind of like almost he's almost deconstructing it and being, yeah i like don't know the, sorry, these are ideas feels very everything about this feels like it's being told to you by a guy who's smoking out of a like long extended <laughs> cigarette at a cocktail party in the 20s yeah, yeah you mentioned this at, at, at a great gatsby's uh yeah you know parties or something like that he's that kind of guy yeah you know? and uh what was it uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Sorry, I said his name wrong. Mm-hmm. There's a connection between him and the. Uh, H. L. Mencken was a fan of um, of uh, 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 Cabell's. Uh, he he uh, he quite uh, emphas- He he apparently promoted his work a lot. Um, quite a few people. Uh, I, I think it was him. Uh, Fitzgerald's wife read it or something. Was Elda Fitzgerald? Yeah, yeah I okay. think she was quoted as saying you must read this or something oh okay i didn't know there was a Fitzgerald connection but i mean again he would have come out he was writing at the same time yeah. and he would have come out of the same literary yeah movement as it were american highbrow stuff in the 20s <laughs> and i mean and that's the thing we talked about how uh you know he 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 didn't sort of pursue fame but people also said you know basically once the 30s hit i you know 
that was probably not the kind of thing people were in the mood for. You know, yeah. highbrow, but also very weirdly fluffy in a way, but also kind of, uh, you know, you you only a highbrow person would read it. It wouldn't. Yeah, it especially the, the depression and then the war, and yeah, then exactly. you know, this is yeah, this is very this is very much like. Uh, it's it's he's almost the PG Wodehouse of of you know it's the the thing Bertie Wooster would read almost <laughs> I can see that it's for you know the idle rich almost yeah I mean not entirely anyone but just at the time you know mm-hmm. if, it wouldn't have been for your average uh, you know Joe it would have been for it, it for the literary circles anyway. Um, so yeah, so it was probably inevitable that he didn't, uh, he didn't hang on. It's, it is funny how thoroughly he's been forgotten though. Uh, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate and I wish I had read it earlier cause I had heard of it, but it just, yeah. uh, it was, uh, I was at one point going to try to read all the precursors to Tolkien and fantasy mm-hmm. and, yeah. um, and I just didn't get to that. I think I got I hung up on the Fairy Queen, which I still haven't finished. Right, and uh, almost you know Oscar Wilde, except Oscar Wilde tended to write very, uh, very well. He he wrote very he wrote very moralistically, but it was to cover up the fact that he was always under <laughs> suspicion of being immoral. So you know he had to yeah. he had to stay on the straight and narrow. But it's in the same uh, the same kind of ballpark. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, anything else you want to say? Uh, no, I highly recommend this one. I know we've talked about the plot, but it's like the yeah. language is very fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of repetition of certain phrases, and mm-hmm. it just, it's a very, it's not a short book. It's not a long one either, but it's its a quick read because it's just it's very a, entertaining. It's breezy. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I would recommend, if you want to read some more, The Figures of Earth, and I kind of want to read The Silver Stallions, which yeah, I Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, trying to go through uh, all of his work, so yeah. So he did, he did he did all these stories, and there's one that's uh, apparently riffing on fairy tales that, again, is part of the Poitam yeah. cycle. The Silver Stallions is about Dom Manuel's uh, knights following figures of earth and they're all telling stories about you know oh he's remembered as this great legend and we already saw the story about how he's a he's a slime bag he actually his motto which i think comes up in jurgen at one point is uh his motto is uh mundi vulut descopy which is uh the world wishes to be deceived okay uh, and that's his guiding principle in life is to you know well people want to be taking advantage of so i'll take advantage of them <laughs> basically uh so he's a rogue and he rises to become the king anyway so, seems to be a recurring thing. <laughs> yeah, well, Figures of Earth definitely seems like, as somebody said, a mirror of uh, Jurgen in some ways. It's it's almost a yeah, him reiterating it in different ways. So, anyway, but it's it's definitely worth looking up. We should let's get a Cabal resurgence going uh, in our society, <laughs> and remember that there is just lots of to fantasy out there that isn't J.R.R. Tolkien. Not that Tolkien's bad, but just no. like there's other things. He doesn't have to define it yeah. as thoroughly. Um, well, it seems like our endless Wednesday may be coming to a close. We are Adam Prosser, the poet and pawnbroker, and Philip Rice, the master philologist. The show is produced and engineered by Alex Ross, who makes podcasts as they are. And the theme song is by Jack Furick, whose music we assume is pleasing to Sarita. Just want to remind everyone that we both have Patreons, and subscribers can listen to the show a week early. Just look under Philip Rice or Adam Prosser at patreon.com, or go to NeverSleepsNetwork slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. If you sign up, you also get comics, illustrations, and other stuff, and you'll help us afford the hosting and recording costs. You can also get this podcast via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or your podcaster of choice. And if you enjoy it, please leave a review. It would also help us if you'd spread the word about What Mad Universe or tell your friends or link to us on social media. Uh, So farewell again until two weeks' time, acolytes of adventure, and we'll see you in the garden between dawn and sunrise.